0: If you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, I will read um, part of our text this morning. And, uh, and so we want to reorient ourselves to the Gospel of John. Uh, we preached in the spring through John 1, 1 through twelve eleven, And then we took a break and preached through the Psalms. And what we did is we preached through Psalms that are connected to the Gospel of John. And so we wanted to, uh, uh, to just show the connection between the Old Testament Psalms... And the Gospel of John. And, uh, and so now we're going back to the Gospel of John. And I'm going to preach today a summary sermon of 1 through 12. So it's going to be a summary sermon um, uh, in order to set us up and remind us of where we've been so that we can then next week jump into John 12 again and, uh, and, and pick up right where we've left off. So let me read John 1, 1 through 18, which is John's prologue, the introduction to his great gospel. And it says this, In the beginning was the word, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What wonderful words, powerful words, epic words. So um, I'm going to give a quote from a movie, and let's see if you can tell me what movie this is from. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. It's all in your heart, kid, and you can never go wrong. What's the movie? It's from The Sandlot, right? In 1993. One of my favorite movies as a kid. And uh, in the movie, this kid who has no idea who Babe Ruth is, uh, borrows a baseball to go play with these new friends and they hit the ball over the fence to this like terrifying dog monster. And so these kids are working together to try to get this ball back. I hope that I'm not ruining the plot for you, but you've had since 1993, so it's, it's time. It's time. All right, so... What they do is, is uh, all of a sudden they realize that this ball that they just hit over the fence was signed by Br- Babe Ruth. And this kid is just totally, he's dead because his dad is going to, his stepdad's going to kill him um, because he lost this valuable ball. Babe Ruth, they say, is the Sultan of Swat, the Titan of Terror, the Colossus of Clout, the Colossus of Clout, and the King of, uh, the King of Crash and the Great Bambino. They describe him as being more than a man, but less than a god, right? The greatest baseball player who ever lived. And so they have to try to get this ball back, and they can't do it. They can't do it on their own until Benny Rodriguez receives a vision, right? He receives this vision from Babe Ruth himself. And Babe Ruth encourages him to do the epic thing, to become a legend, right? And he says this to, uh, to Benny. He says, heroes get remembered, but legends never die, it's all in your heart, kid, and you can never go wrong. And so I think actually people take that kind of view of Jesus, is that Jesus is like this epic legend, and he did these great amazing things that almost seem superhuman, and if we will just look deep inside our hearts and look to his example, we might be able to do something legendary as well. And I think there's people that see Jesus that way, as sort of a spiritual Babe Ruth, one of the greats, maybe, maybe the great of all time, the greatest spiritual leader of all time. And if we could just learn from his example, and if we could just sort of get this sort of like, you know, metaphysical vision of him, then maybe we could look in our hearts and we could be great too. I think there's a lot of people that think that. But the Gospel of John portrays Jesus in an entirely different way. Not as some sort of like spiritual great, that if we follow his example, will be great too. Not just some sort of legend, but as something different entirely. Jesus is not just a life coach to kind of lead you in a self-improvement prospect. He's not like a spiritual CrossFit trainer leading you to make a little bit better version of yourself. John is laying out a vision of Jesus that is far superior and far greater than just an inspirational figure as just one of the greats of all time, but as God in the flesh. God in the flesh come to rescue humanity. And, and so John is going to lay this out. So in the Gospel of John here, we have two parts to the Gospel. In the first part, uh, chapters 1 through about chapter 12, we have John's prologue, which we read together, his introduction. He lays out the thesis of his argument. And if you notice, we read Genesis 1, you also read John 1, and they both start with in the beginning. John is very careful to lay out that the God who spoke in the beginning to create a world is the same God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. So John is going to make this claim, not that Jesus is one of the greats, but Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the one who's come. And so from the very outset, John, like a good lawyer, is laying out his case for who Jesus is, and then goes on to defend his case with the claims and the actions and the fulfillments that Jesus lays out. Um, and so John is an eyewitness, one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus. And so he's an eyewitness testimony to who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and now he's going to lay out his case in the gospel of uh, making the case that Jesus is the Son of God and proving it through events from his life and ministry. In the second half of the gospel, uh, chapters 12 through 21, we, it's, it's focused in basically on the last week of Jesus' life. Where he gives special instruction to his apostles, but then also it's the recording of his death and resurrection. And then the epilogue, where John lays out why this is significant. Why Jesus being the Son of God is significant. So, um, let's talk about the, uh, the apostle here for just a moment. John is the apostle. It's the one who wrote the book. So he's one of the ones that walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, one of Jesus' inner three uh, disciples. But John himself never names himself in the, uh, in the gospel. The author is never named. John um, um, kind of puts himself a bit in the background of the gospel, um, and it, it, he shows up three times as the disciple who Jesus loved. So John, I think, refers to himself, this is how we know John wrote it, is I think he's alluding to himself in John 13, 23, when he says one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side and seems to be saying that this is the perspective of this gospel. In John 19, 34 through 37, standing at the crucifixion moment, standing at the cross, it says, one of the, the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne, test, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, and you also may believe, which if you read the other gospels, you know that the one disciple who was at the cross at the death of Jesus, was John. All the others had fled and run off. And so John is saying, the, the one who is bearing witness, the one who's giving you this testimony, is the one who was standing right there at the foot of the cross. And I can give you, I'm telling you the truth. I am wagering my life on the fact that what I'm telling you in this gospel is true. And then in John 20, verse 2, uh, at the resurrection, she also ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is, I think John's referring to himself, the one whom Jesus loved, said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So John does not want himself to be the, the point of this gospel. So he doesn't even name himself, but he does say that this is, you are seeing Jesus through eyewitness testimony when you read the gospel of John. Now John, the, God, the apostle John, was one of the last of the apostles to die. And, um, and so, and this gospel according to scholars, is, is the last gospel written. Probably written around AD 80 to 85-ish. And if you think about it, you know, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had already been written. They'd been circulating for some time. And so John is sort of late to the party in terms of writing his eyewitness account, but certainly would have been familiar with the testimony of Jesus, what the other apostles, what the other gospel writers had written. Um, and so John is writing this gospel to give an interpretation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and to give us some new information. There's more to Jesus' story than has been recorded. And when you think about it, the writing of this gospel is one of the most courageous acts, I think, in human history. Because at this point, by the time John decides, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write his gospel, a lot has happened. According to church history, which is not always... Some of these things are hard to pin down exactly, but according to tradition, by the time you get to 80-85, John is probably the only disciple left, and all of the others have died brutal, brutal deaths for their testimony of Jesus. There has been tremendous persecution during this time. And so for John, all of a sudden, you know, the last one left, and, and seeing what, what it costs to follow Jesus... For John to come right out of the gate and write this epic biography of Jesus is tremendously courageous in the middle of persecution. To want to double down on the identity of Jesus, on the saving power of Jesus, and to do so not in a vengeful way, but in a loving way in order to persuade more people to trust in Jesus and maybe even go to their death for him. Like this gospel is an amazing thing. Think about this. The apostle Andrew, by this time, according to tradition, had been crucified in Greece. The, uh, the Apostle Thomas, speared to death east of Syria. Philip, put to death in Asia Minor. Matthew, stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, probably murdered in Arabia. Simon the Zealot, killed in Persia. Matthias, burned to death in Syria. James, the son of Alphaeus, thrown off a building by scribes and Pharisees, and then stoned and clubbed to death in the head. Peter, crucified upside down according to tradition in AD 68. Paul... The Apostle Paul beheaded in A.D. 68. James, John's own brother, killed in 44 A.D., and you can read about it in Acts chapter 12. All of this happens before John writes his gospel, most likely. And so for John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to just go, oh yeah? (laughs) He's still risen, and he's worth dying for. And all of these people that have died, um, died for a real reason, for a risen Savior, who is God the Lord. So you think about the courage that comes behind the setting of the Gospel of John. Um, and just what an amazing doubling down on the identity of Jesus when it's going to cost you your life. And, uh, and they say that John was actually probably boiled in a vat of, vat of oil but lived. And so they exiled, they exiled him to the island of Patmos because God wasn't done with him yet. He was invincible until God was done with him. He still had more to write, particularly, I think, the revelation at the end of your Bible. And so, John, it's just an amazingly courageous thing that we even have this book, we have this gospel. So, now, some of those accounts are, there's some speculation, because church tradition can get a little wonky. But if it's generally true that they all were killed in terrible ways, then the fact that we have this gospel is just an amazing work of courage, of... um, Brought to us by the Holy Spirit so the gospel of John is unique from the other three gospels Matthew Mark and Luke are often called the synoptics And you put those you break the word synoptic apart. It means same view same perspective Matthew Mark and Luke all very much overlap tell a lot of the same stories or almost word for word in some of their accounts and so in, in, they're called the synoptics because you get the same portrait of Jesus Almost word for word in places between those three. But in John, the fourth gospel, you have almost 95% new information in the gospel of John. John is totally unique. John is totally, I think, after these de- decades of, of seeing the message and the mission and the gospel go forth, goes there's still more to the story. And so he's, not, he's saying everything in alignment with the other three gospels. He's not contradicting them at all but he's adding a whole nother theological flavor, a whole nother perspective, a whole bunch of new information about Jesus and that to this point, and if he hadn't written, we would never know. Pretty amazing. John leaves out a bunch of information that the other gospels include. It's surprising, John includes no parables. John includes no parables. <clears throat> There's no story of transfiguration There's no institution of the Lord's Supper. There's no casting out of demons in the Gospel of John. There's no mention of Jesus' temptation. And there's no speaking really in any meaningful sense about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The Gospel of John is totally unique from the others in that that's not his primary mission in writing that Gospel. John does include a lot of things that the other Gospels don't include at all. Like transforming the water into wine. Or the interaction with Nicodemus. His ministry in Samaria is almost entirely absent in the other Gospels. The resurrection of Lazarus, which blows my mind, that the other three Gospel writers did not include the resurrection of Lazarus, but Jesus did, and I'm so glad he did, because there's so much we know about Jesus. Um, it is the Gospel that most clearly identifies Jesus as God. John is very clear, he is very clear that the divinity of Jesus is just so clear in the Gospel of John in ways that really adds to the other Gospels. Um, John has some chronological challenges because his primary aim is to make a theological court case. He's like a lawyer arguing the claim, Jesus is the Son of God, come to save sinners. And so he is laying this out like a court case, and he is laying out entirely new information about Jesus that accords with the other Gospels and makes the Son of God and receive eternal life. In fact, that's his point. In John 20:30 30, and 31, he says this. He says, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? So let's talk for just a few moments. In John chapter 1, there's the claim announced. And that's what we have with the prologue that we read earlier is that Jesus is telling us that this is God in the flesh, the fulfilled one of Israel, the, the one who has come. He is, um, he is the creator God who became flesh, and in that he's referring to Genesis 1. The in the beginning connection between Genesis 1 and John 1 is strong. He's saying this is the creator God of, of the world, and he became flesh. We see this talking of that we have seen his glory, which is a reference to Exodus and the tabernacle glory. God's glory became manifest, um, became approachable, became visible in some sense. And so John is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the creator God become flesh, and he is the tabernacle glory, the God with us. The, The God, the presence of God, the glory of God in our presence, and we are now seeing him. And that Jesus came to bring life and light and adoption and glory and grace, and he also came to bear our death to bear our darkness, to bear our alienation, to bear our shame and our condemnation. He's not just a, a spiritual guru to lead us to a better life. He is life. And he is going to, in himself, absorb death, darkness, alienation, shame, and condemnation and offer all who believe eternal life, light, adoption, glory, and grace. And in the second half of, of, uh, of, of John chapter 1, look at 19 through 51. I'd love to, to dig in here for just a moment. Look at 19 through 51. Here we have this interesting, we have the, the beginning of John's claim beginning to be fleshed out. He is going to make the case, of, uh, or he's going to show us who the identity of Jesus is. Let me just go ahead and read it for us. In John 19 through 51, he says, this is the testimony of John. Now I want you to watch, there's seven titles that pop up in verses 19 through 51 where people are trying to figure out who Jesus is and there's seven titles that hop up the, the, the number seven which I'm going to show you about four different times the number seven is so critical to John it's the number of perfection it often refers to divine things and John is going to arrange a set of sevens in order to prove to us to show us in a masterful way who Jesus is so look at verses 19 through 51 and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, are you, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So this is speaking of John the Baptist. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. And they said to him, who are you? He, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I am the preparer, the announcer of the one you're looking for, the Messiah. I am the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the identity of John the Baptist is really critical as a foreshadowing, uh, as, a, as an indicator, as a sign of who Jesus is and how we will recognize him. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing? You are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered, I baptize you with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the prophecies are starting to come true. The forerunner of the Messiah has come. And John says, he's in the crowd. He's here. He's present. Uh, He's about to unveil himself. He's about to show up. And here it is, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's title number one, right? Who is this? This Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, and he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So we have, a, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all at once here. The Father announcing the, the Spirit descending on a dove, and the Son, Jesus Christ. We have the triune God all here in this passage. I myself did not know him. And he who sent me baptized with water and said to me, he on whom the Spirit descends and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and am born witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, so Jesus, one, one identifying title that Jesus has is Lamb of God, according to John. The next day, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked by, he said, behold the Lamb of God. John says it a second time. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, that's title number two, right? Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak And followed Jesus was Andrew, son of Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, title number three. The Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law, also the prophets, wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus of Nazareth, the physical, historical person, the human person, the person in history. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. He's a real person. So Jesus of Nazareth, so that's our fourth title, the man, the person, the historical person who was born and breathed air and lived and had friends and built tables and worked with his dad and all those things. This Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the real living historical human being. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, title number five, and the king of Israel, title number six. Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on, title number seven, the son of man, predicted in Daniel chapter seven as a title of the Messiah. And so John is doing this masterful thing with the calling of Jesus, the confirming of Jesus. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And he arranges this seven, and he's making a statement in this section. I think this will show up on the screen. Here is the statement that he is making at the end of John chapter one. Jesus of Nazareth, a real historical person, is the promised son of man, truly human, and the unique son of God, truly divine, Who came to be the rabbi, the teacher, the speaker of God, the instructor of God, the voice of God, and the king of Israel. And the whole world by dying as the lamb of God and atoning sacrifice for sin. You see what John's doing? He's using the historical events of Jesus. And he he is telling the story in such a way to show that Jesus, these seven titles, these seven names are fulfilled in one historical person. And here is who he is. Here he here is who he is. And so then John in chapters two through twelve, and we'll fly over this very quickly. Um, he is going to prove that's his claim. That's his that's his that's his statement. Jesus is the promised Son of Man, the unique Son of God, who came to be the teacher, King, uh, teacher and King of Israel and of the whole world by dying as the Lamb of God for sin and rising again. And now he's going to prove his claim. He's going to prove that these titles are legitimate to Jesus. That this really is who he is. This is really what he came to do. And John loves the number seven. And so we're going to look at a bunch of number sevens that we find in, in the rest of John's gospel. And he's making a compelling case for the person and work of Jesus. And that it should be and must be believed to receive eternal life. First, we have the seven signs of Jesus. In chapter 2, we have Jesus turning water to wine at a wedding. And that's called the first sign. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus healing a royal royal official's son. In John chapter 5, we have Jesus healing a paralytic, showing his supernatural power. We see that John, in in chapter 6, that Jesus feeds 5,000 people which is sort of a picture of the exodus, of manna coming down in the desert. Jesus can feed his people in the wilderness. He is the divine provider of food. Jesus walks on water in John chapter 6. Jesus heals the blind man in John chapter 9. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in the seventh culminating sign, the greatest of these signs. Each of these signs is greater in power and glory and significance, from water to wine to the raising of a dead man in chapter 11. And actually, that raising of Lazarus is what's going to turn us into the second half of the book. It's, gonna, it's what's going to lead to Jesus' execution. So we have these seven signs, these several, seven miracle-working signs that show that Jesus is not just a man, not just a legend, not just a spiritual guru, but God himself, Lord of creation. And then we also have the seven statements from Jesus. So interwoven with these seven signs are these seven statements about Jesus. They're called the I Am Statements. And the I am statements have an allusion back to Exodus chapter 3. We're at the burning bush. Moses encounters God. And the bush is not burning up. And he's going to go deliver God's people. And he says, who should I tell them that sent me? And God says, my name is Yahweh, which is I am who I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the eternal one. I am the one I am that I am, Yahweh. And so when Jesus, in these seven statements, he is saying that I am the God Yahweh. I am. So Jesus, not only by his works, but by his words, is validating that he is the I am, the God of the Old Testament. In John 6, four different times, he says, I am the bread of life. So Jesus is the bread that sustains physical, just as bread sustains physical life, so also Jesus offers and sustains spiritual life. In John 8, He says, I am the light of the world. So the world is lost in darkness, but Christ himself will come and bring light, bring revelation, bring direction. In John 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. So Jesus protects his followers and shepherds and protects his flock from predators. He says in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life, which means that death is not not the final word for those that trust in Jesus. Jesus gives eternal life. He is the eternal life giver. In John 10, he also says that I am the good shepherd. Jesus is committed to caring and watching over those who are his. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the source of all truth and knowledge about God. He is the life-giving God of heaven. And in John 15, I am the true vine. So by attaching to ourselves to Christ by faith, he and we have this life. We have this life that flows from him through us and we bear fruit of good works. Not good works in order to earn God's salvation, but, er, but works that are, that are produced in us by the Spirit. And in John 8, like I said before, the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old and yet you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is saying, I existed more than 2,000 years ago. I was Abraham's God. I am the one who was leading Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus, by his own statements, believes that he is the Messiah. And then we have the seven symbols of Jesus. We could come up with many, many more, but I've just chosen seven. There are only 14 quotations in the, Old, uh, in the Gospel of John of the Old Testament, direct quotations. A lot of the other Gospels quote the, the, quote, the Old Testament very directly. But there's only, I think, 14 that I found in the Gospel of John of direct quotations of the Old Testament. But there are 105 allusions. John loves to use pictures. So instead of quoting word for word from the Old Testament, he uses pictures like bread and a wedding. And here's some of them. Is that we see in chapter 2 that Jesus is the wedding planner who brings out the best wine, right? He is the one that's preparing a banquet for his people and, the, and it will always get better. Most wedding planners go ahead and put the bad wine at the end because people are already had enough wine. They won't notice the quality getting less. But Jesus is the one who, when he brings his people into the eternal wedding, it will only get better and better. So Jesus is seen as the, uh, the wedding planner. He's the bridegroom and the host, making the eternal wedding even better. In chapter 2, we see this illusion, this picture of Jesus being the real temple. He says, tear down this temple, and in three days I will rise it again. Speaking about himself, Jesus in the flesh is the meeting place between God and man. A temple is where man and God meet together. Jesus is the real temple. In chapter 3, when he's speaking with Nicodemus, he is shown to be the superior teacher. So even the rabbinical system is meant to point to Jesus. Jesus is the one who teaches us the words and ways of God. In chapter 3, we have Jesus as the uplifted serpent. So that picture in the Old Testament where they were disobeying God, they were grumbling against God, and so God, as an act of discipline, sent serpents among them, and the people were beginning to get sick and die. And so God gave instruction, God gave a way of pardon, and he said, lift up this bronze serpent, and anyone who looks in faith at my provision will be healed instantly of their disease. And Jesus says, I am the one who removes the death sentence from your life if you'll look on me in faith. I'm the one that will remove the curse and the punishment. We have the picture of living water. Jesus is at the well of Jacob. Jesus is at the pool of Siloam. Jesus is the ruler of the seas when he walks on the water. Jesus calls himself the living water. Jesus calls himself the true spiritual drink. The one who puts rivers of living water into the disciples. So we see that Jesus is the one who rules chaotic oceans and seas, and he's the one who gives life-giving water. So we have this picture of water. And also in John, we have this picture of the heavenly bread. Jesus is the bread giver who sustains our physical life. But Jesus is also the spiritual bread and bread giver who who sustains our spiritual life. So the picture of bread in the Old Testament is meant to point to Jesus. And then in chapters 5, 7, and 9, we see that Jesus is the true Sabbath, the true rest of God. The true, no longer needing to earn our favor, no needing to work off our sins. Jesus is the true rest, the true Sabbath the one in whom we find rest. And what, what's interesting is that John interweaves these seven things among seven ceremonies. So this is the last one. The first is at the first Passover, where God delivers his people by the angel passing over the Jews by the blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus is at the first Passover, speaking to John, or speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about this first, at this first Passover. We have the Feast of the Jews in chapter 5, um, where God, through Esther, um, delivers his people through the work of Esther. We have the second Passover again, um, where, uh, in John chapter 6, uh, the festival of booths or tabernac- tabernacles, about how God led his people through the 40 years in the wilderness by light, and that, in that place, at that feast, John, um, John uh, records that Jesus calls himself the one that's leading Israel's people as the light of the world. We have the great day, which is connected to the tabernacles. That's the fourth one in John 7. Um, and and on in John chapter 10, the feast of dedication, or the rededication, where uh, they were remembering how they, how they were delivered in the Maccabean period, and the festival of lights, or Hanukkah as we know it. Um, and so Jesus is showing that he is the one who is delivering his people And then finally the final Passover is where Jesus then goes to his death So even the, the, the way John uh, records the timelines and the feasts of Israel They're all pointing to Jesus They're all pointing to Jesus' identity and his work Each feast and holiday reminds us that Jesus is the completeness of God's plan for redemption Even the feasts were meant to preach of Jesus He's the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, especially the festivals of God's people. Which brings us then to John 20, 30, and 31. Why is John telling us this? Why is he doing this masterful work of weaving these sevens together? Is he's trying to prove to us this. John 20, 30, and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in the book. But these are written. He's like, I've written these in this way so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is trying to compel us to look at Jesus, to forsake our sin, to look to no one else, and to look to Jesus. And he is giving us proof after proof from the Old Testament, proof after proof from the actions of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the, uh, the ceremonies that Jesus is doing these things in, they all point to the fact that Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from our sins. And so there is a call to us today to forsake our sin and to believe this masterpiece that John has written, that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who's come to take the sins of the world, who is our teacher, who is our light, who is the one who can satisfy all all of the demands of God for his people. Jesus satisfies the... Um, satisfies those for us and if we trust we enter into christ so here's the bottom line i know that was just a fire hose but it's hard to preach 12 chapters at once so let me give you the bottom line is the gospel of john is a god-given god-inspired evangelistic document to persuade and plead with mankind be reconciled to god through jesus christ he is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your submission. He is worthy of your belief and your allegiance. And so what do we do? I think there are some people who see the Gospel of John as being only evangelistic. And therefore, the believer should go to other places. That Once you've become a Christian, yeah, I get it, John. Okay, I get it. Your long book, Jesus is God, I get it. I believe, all right? But that's, I think we should do more than that with the Gospel of John. I think the Christian should master the Gospel of John for assurance Because we need to be reminded of how and why we're saved. We need to be remembered. So we should come to the Gospel of John as believers so that we may know that we have real assurance in Jesus Christ. So we should read the Gospel of John, even if we're already Christians, for assurance, to remind ourselves of what really saves. But we also should come to the Gospel of John for courage. Think about the setting in which John's writing, and he is doubling down on Jesus. He is more clear and more compassionate in his call of people to come to faith in Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we should reach the Gospel of John in that same way, that we should have courage about who Jesus is. We should not waver when the temptation comes, that even if death were to come, we are going to cling to Jesus all the tighter and even more so plead with people, be reconciled to God through Christ. We should also read the Gospel of John for instruction and insight. Every single one of these I am statements tells us something not just about Jesus, but about us. That we have spiritual need. That we have spiritual hunger. Jesus doesn't just save us in one moment and then leave us to go do our own thing. No, he is continuing to give us water. He is continuing to give us bread. He is continuing to be the light of the world. He is continuing to be um, all of these things. And so we, we need to be Uh, remember that jesus is a savior for all of life he's not just an entrance into the kingdom of god he is in a sense the kingdom of god enjoying jesus forever jesus is a savior for all life he is water because we still have spiritual thirst he continues to be bread because we still have spiritual hunger he is still the calling shepherd because we're still sometimes wandering sheep who are helpless and need him he is the vine and we are the branches we are to bear fruit as believers. The Gospel of John is one of the greatest literary masterpieces of all time. It's intricate yet simple. You can hand it to someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible and they can understand it. And scholars can spill thousands and thousands of pages with ink. They can spill ink on thousands and thousands of pages and never get to the depths of it. The Gospel of John is amazing. It's so simple a child could read it and it's so deep that a theologian could never master it in a lifetime. It's cosmic yet practical. It's eternal yet very much in the moment. Jesus is very much in the moment with the woman at the well, with Nicodemus. Jesus is very much in the moment and yet cosmically controlling the whole world. The Gospel of John speaks of eternal things yet is still in the moment. It's about God who's on high, but it's also about the lowest and most worthless human being. May we know this Gospel personally and intimately. May we know God through the person and work of the Christ. So, this call, this message is to just blow your mind with the Gospel of John and to pique your interest, to stir up your appetite for our study of it in the coming weeks. That there are depths of wonder here. Listen to John 21-25, the very last verses of, um, of John. Listen to this. And then we'll close. John 21-25. Listen to the conclusion of the Gospel of John. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did <laughs> the, the first three gospels which John was familiar with goes oh they didn't get all of it so he writes a whole other gospel and then he says there are many other things Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written we will never get to the bottom of the glory of Christ we will never get to the bottom of the riches of Christ Christ is living water that will never run out. Bread that will never grow stale. He is light that will never go out. He is the eternal Son of God and He is worthy of our worship. And so we must come to the Gospel of John looking for a Jesus that we can worship and should worship. And that is what God calls us to now. So as we dig into the rest of John and get all of this practical instruction, we go through his death and his resurrection, uh, let us marvel at what God has given us through the Gospel of John and ultimately what God has given us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for this book and I know that I just avalanched them with stuff. I did that on purpose, Lord. I want us to just be in awe of the message is so simple. Jesus is the Son of God and by believing you'll have life in his name. So simple, a toddler could get it. And yet the depths of the glories are going to take us an eternity uh, to even begin to explore. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir up in our hearts a wonder for the Jesus that's revealed in the Gospel of John. God, we thank you for this spiritually inspired, this divinely inspired and preserved book about Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that we would savor every word, that we would savor every sentence and paragraph and chapter of it this fall and that we wouldn't do it for its own sake but we would do it because jesus is worthy of our worship and lord i pray that if there is anyone in here who has not yet been impressed by jesus who's not yet seen him as the sinless savior who died on the cross god in the flesh who came to bear their sins and rise again lord i pray that even in this moment That you would cause them to repent of sin and believe in you. Your life, your death, your resurrection uh, for their sin, Lord. And I pray that this book would become intensely personal. That John's intention, that by believing in this son of God, we would have life. I pray, Lord, that that would be true of someone today. That that verse would be intensely personal. That they would meet and see and receive and trust and worship the Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, So, Lord, we thank you for this and pray that you would stir our hearts with affection for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.
1: Stand with us. so.
0: Seated. Sorry about that. Those slides disappeared, and there was no there's no safety net today. There's nobody to catch those things if I miss them. So, okay, we want to just take a few questions.
2: Yeah. So, um, I have a few questions. I'll ask some questions, and then I'll open it up to anyone here. If you have any questions you'd like for points of clarification or uh, follow up. Um, I guess first, I actually, a comment. One thing that was ha- very helpful for me was the idea that as we look at Jesus in the Gospel of John, that for everything that he says about himself or that John says about Jesus, it, it gives us something to reflect about what we need from Jesus. I think is uh, very that was very helpful. Um, uh, so I guess one question would be, uh, h- how are we going to see some of these things coming in the n- second part of John? So we're essentially mm-hmm. halfway. John splits more or less almost into two parts, mm-hmm. the part that you just summarized and then yep. the part that's coming. How does he, what are some things maybe we can be looking for in the next part yeah, of John? Some spoilers. Yeah.
0: Some spoilers for the next. Well, the next part, he really begins to zoom. In less, it's less about his public ministry, and now he zeroes in on preparing his disciples for life without him. And so he begins to teach them uh, quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. He begins to then teach them a little a lot about uh, himself and sort of their ongoing ministry, the suffering that they're about to endure, uh, how they're supposed to lean into these kinds of things. So the first half is very much John's case that Jesus has proved that he is who he said he is. That he is who the gospel writes. And then, yeah, in the second half, leading up to his life or his death and resurrection, which is the primary reason why he came, there's this special instruction to his disciples. And so I think that's where it's going to get tremendously practical. And part of what makes this one probably my favorite gospel is that Jesus is almost, he's speaking very intimately with his disciples. But I think that we can take a lot of it as him speaking intimately to us Mm. about how our lives are going to go and how Mm -hmm. Christians are supposed to walk with him even when he is... Ascended, mm-hmm. um, So I think we're going to see a lot of these things fleshed out and he's going to give specific teaching on how we now live as people who believe in mm-hmm. Jesus. So I think it's going to get mm-hmm. tremendously practical from the actual words of Jesus. Like if, if you have, if your Bible has the words of Jesus in red, then we're going to start to see a lot of red <laughs> from here on out. Like whole chapters that are entirely red because Jesus is now going, okay, what does it mean if you've believed in me to now live um, um. So yeah, you can just see 14 15. There's almost no black ink. So yeah, anyway, Yeah,
2: no, it's good um, It seems that John Making as you pointed out so many references to the Old Testament is also um, Showing us how to read mm-hmm. the Old Testament in the that's Bible good. and I guess so my question is maybe just as we're approaching the series how can people be I mean? from people who are very familiar with the Bible to people who
1: aren't fam- very familiar with the Bible.
0: I think what's awesome is that you could just hand the Gospel of John. That's why we have those journals out there. Is John can be read very much just on its own and be understood. But it's also one of those that, like, if you wanted to chase, chase some of the rabbits and sort of see why is it said this way, where have I heard this before, You can chase that down in the Old Testament, and you'll begin to realize that history is rigged. History is rigged for the glory of Jesus. And I think that's part of what blows my mind, and one of the things that most convinces me that Christianity is true is that there's no way that these 66 books written over the course of 1,400 years by 40 different authors could say one story that could be made up. There's no way you could arrange that unless God himself did it. And so I think that's what part of blows my mind here is that the more I know my Bible, the more amazing I think the gospel and the gospel of John itself just becomes more and more masterful. So I think that reading the gospel of John hopefully stirs your appetite to read other portions of scripture because John is sort of pulling all of these threads together and he's not just quoting it, but he's using pictures like are any of you more of like picture people than word people? If you're more picture person, John's great, you know, because he's Mm -hmm. giving you these pictures of of water and bread and he's engaging all the senses and uh and it's all kind of coming in from the old testament so uh, what i like about john is whatever level you're at in your christian maturity there is something for you in john mm-hmm.
2: yeah, so, yeah that's good uh, i have one more question and then I'll, I'll open it up to everyone else um of all the symbols signs i am statements was is there one that particularly stood out to you just as you were thinking about oh, man. preparing the sermon
0: that's a good question I love the I am the good shepherd one I just find such comfort especially when you go back to Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not walk and all that he walks me through I'm also really blown away by his interaction at, uh, with, with Mary and Martha Lazarus which is the one that runs out to him is it Mary? yes it's Mary that runs out to him and I just love the tenderness like he's about to go um, he's about to go raise Lazarus from the dead and then walk into a, an, an utter buzzsaw that's going to kill him and yet he stops and just cares for Mary in her grief mm-hmm. and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who lives in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And, th- and he who believes in me will never die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two dynamics together of how we, though we die, yet shall we live and yet will never die, um, feel contradictory, but they're glorious in that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So death does not have the final word. Mm-hmm. So I think. Maybe those would be two of my favorites. Okay. Just because I love the setting in which they're communicated and the personal care that he has for this. He's going to reveal this most magnificent statement individually with this woman. Yeah. Is just amazing. Yeah. So. It was Martha? Okay. Yeah. I always yeah. forget which one's which.
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Don't That's give Martha good. a hard time. Good clarification. Very good. So, anyone, questions? Questions of clarification on or, the sermon? Or just a comment. Or a comment?
0: Maybe there's something you love about the Gospel of John.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one thing actually along those lines that I think you can continually do as you read through the Gospel of John is you can read the prologue and at any portion of the Gospel, you can go back and find... Things that connect, so you can read the prologue, read John chapter 15 or whatever, and then go back and be like, "What sort of things is John showing me?" Mm-hmm. And you just bounce back and forth between the first 18 verses yep. and the rest of the gospel. It's the whole gospel is laid out in the first 18 yeah.
0: verses, and then he goes ahead and zooms it out. Yeah. And then, um, if you if you notice, it zooms out to incorporate the whole Bible and then actually all of history. Yeah, like yeah. It's just like it goes like, it, I don't know, it's, it's just really amazing. Vague. Yeah, it's really yeah. amazing. All right. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. i Hmm, that's a great question. I think so. Shall I repeat the question? Yeah,
0: go ahead and repeat it for the live stream. So
2: the question is, um, uh, why is say... The story of Lazarus the only story or why is it only in John? Uh, What's John trying to do by adding stories that aren't in the other synoptics?
0: My guess is like if I was to put myself in John's shoes I would guess that he was probably like this is probably one reason why I got to write another gospel is the other guys Didn't include this Mm -hmm. now. They had different arguments. They were trying to make, you know Still telling the same story. They're not changing Jesus at all, but the stories they're selecting are targeting a particular audience. You know, Matthew's trying to write and persuade people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Mark's writ- written largely to I think more of a Gentile ar- audience. Luke is actually writing a gospel and Acts to one person, Theophilus, which is amazing. It's a third of the New Testament is written to one person, mm-hmm. which just tells you about the care God has for one person. Is mm-hmm. you know so uh, so John I do think is coming in and trying to give the big picture and to fill it out, which is why he doesn't bother trying to repeat the other things i think he's assuming people probably already familiar or have access to the other gospels let me go ahead and this is like the extended edition you know Mm -hmm. let me give you some of the behind the scenes things and and my guess is that if i was john like why did they leave out the resurrection of lazarus Mm -hmm. like people have got to know that so yeah I, i do think that that was filling out the story and um yeah and, and, and explaining John is the most clear in terms of explaining Jesus's identity yeah so yeah,
2: yeah that's good yeah
0: very good well I hope like uh, my thought in this sermon and in a, oh did you have something Jacob that's right um, yeah so this was still at the time of the apostles when they're writing down their teaching and so the Bible was not yet complete And so, yeah, John was writing this. So, yeah, I couldn't sit down and write a book and add it to the Scriptures. Revelation is very clearly the last book, I think, for that reason. So, good question. Yep. Very good question. Yep. So, this was still at the period which we called before the canon, which just means this, was closed. So, so yeah, our Bible's complete. We're not adding any more to it. Yep. Very good. Yes, Kathy? yes yes yep yep so were there other books that john wrote yes john wrote the gospel of john and the revelation he also wrote first second and third john towards the end of your new testament as well which are very short little letters and are some of the sweetest letters in the new testament first john is about how you can know you're a christian um second john is a lot about like what kind of missionaries and should we support It's, it's kind of a support letter and then 3rd John, if I'm right, maybe I'm getting the two mixed up. One is more about false teachers, one's more about how to support and care for true teachers. And so, anyway, they're very sweet little letters that, you know, fit almost on one page, except for 1st John. So, yeah, John wrote five five different uh, writings in the New Testament. So, great question. So, I approach this message and a lot of my sermons a bit like Chinese food, in that you'll always have leftovers. So, I never expect everybody to get everything that I included in this message. But part of the reason we record it is that I hope that it's one of those that you could put in your ears while you're washing the dishes or mowing the lawn and there would be more nourishment. So never feel in my sermons like you have to try to get everything that's in there. Um, I always want to try to preach in such a way that when you're full, you're full. That's great. You've got enough to kind of feast and think on. But it's the kind of messages I hope that you can go back to, listen to on podcast and get something else get something more go a little bit deeper so just so you know um, that is I think this is one of those messages that I hope gets re-listened to as we go through the fall to just go okay let me see what's sort of going on in the big picture um, that's the idea there so subscribe to our podcast there's a little commercial there I'll upload that that later this afternoon this message will be uploaded and the Q&A and then also these are on our website on Facebook on YouTube and so if there is some of this that you'd like to go through again um, uh, we we do that for that reason. So let's please stand and let's have our benediction together. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better. Oh, this is from last week. Man, I don't know what happened to our slides. It'll work. It'll work. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Jesus is the the one and only Savior that we can trust in. So. Thanks for your patience with us this week. And uh, yeah, we hope that we'll see you again next week. Check out redeeminggrace.info. Fill out a prayer request card. Register for next Sunday. Find out what's going on in the life of our church. And we'll uh, see you next week. So God bless you.